Let's open our Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 38, 39, 40, 41, 42 this evening. As we finish up the book of Job, we find again the beginning of the book is um, the calamity that comes into Job's life, chapters 1 and 2, all with a challenge from Lucifer in the heavenly realm that would see how Job would react if his life was uh, turned upside down. Uh, how would he respond? Would he curse God? Would he accuse God? Uh, he did none of the above. His statement in chapter 1 was, Naked I came, naked I go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That didn't work, so the enemy of our soul attacked Job again, uh, again in the heavenly realm, this time taking away his health. And um, he sits in this situation <clears throat> over a period of a week before, before anybody actually says anything to him. He's covered with boils from head to foot, but again, he doesn't curse God for the calamity. Uh, he does not understand it, but he doesn't curse the Lord either for, for bringing the calamity into his life. Basically, he said to his wife, shall we receive only uh, good from the Lord and not adversity? And in all this, it says that Job didn't sin, nor did he charge God falsely. Then we go to the heart and the major part of the book of Job, which is three different rounds of debate between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And up till chapter 25, they are unable to convince Job or persuade Job that he is done something wrong to deserve this calamity. Their, their line of thinking is, Job, if you're innocent, then bad things don't happen to good people, period. That's pretty much their philosophy. And this goes on for three different rounds, as you can see on the screen, all the way up to chapter 25. Bildad in chapter 25 sort of cashes it all in. He's, he's realizing that um, their heavy-handed tactics in attacking Job aren't working. And so they're sort of backing off. Bildad backs off. And then we have, of course, Job um, defending himself in his own self-righteousness until Elihu comes into the picture. And Elihu is younger than these other men. And um, he never really gets a chance for Job to respond to his assessment of Job's situation. So where we left it off in chapter 37, Elihu, this young guy, is still speaking. And uh, as we begin chapter 38, Job does not have a chance to respond to Elihu. We're not going to hear about Elihu anymore, as a matter of fact. We're, we'll hear about the other three, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. We'll hear about them again. But we won't hear any more about um, Elihu. Now, I'm sitting in the back prayer room. And I'm trying to put myself in this story for this study tonight because as you look at chapter 38, and we were here on Sunday, um, the Lord just breaks into and reveals himself to Job. And I tried to think of different places in the scripture where something that dramatic. On Sunday I talked about um, Peter, James, and John being on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus is glorified. Elijah and Moses show up. I mean, how more dramatic can you get? Jesus shines 
with his glory. And then sort of on a more judgmental side, you have in the book of Daniel, um, the very night that Babylon falls, they're mocking God by um, taking the golden vessels out of the, the temple and actually having a party with these vessels. And all of a sudden, here comes a hand of God out of nowhere. And it's dramatic. And it changes everything. I mean, from that moment on, Babylon is gone. The king dies that very evening, and Daniel, of course, comes in and interprets what the writing of of the wall means. Well, as we look at chapter 38, that's sort of the transition. We got this thing going on for so many chapters, these three rounds of debate, and then Elihu comes into the situation. And uh, Job never responds, because in the first verse of chapter 38, it says, Then the Lord answered Job. All of a sudden, God's on the scene. And it's not just men debating men. The Lord is talking to Job. Now, Job is not going to say anything until we get to chapter 40. So what the Lord is going to get involved with here, Elihu is out of the picture. Forget about him. He's gone. This is one-on-one, the Lord, Jehovah, confronting Job. And he says here, And I think everybody's gone. It's implied that a storm has come and everybody's run for shelter. We don't know if that's the case or not. But as far as the text is concerned, as we get into our study tonight, we have the Lord speaking directly to Job. This was our text on Sunday, the first seven verses, so let's read them. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man, Job. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. And uh, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what was it fashioned and fastened? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, if you're here on Sunday morning... We had a Bible study that dealt with this verse here about creation. Our, our verses were Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens of the earth. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We were in Romans chapter 1, we were in Hebrews chapter 1, and we were in Colossians chapter 1. And I purposely put those together, or I should say the Lord did, because one of the things that it showed us is the evidence of design even in this book that we have here. If you, just, if you would just do a study on the three sixteens of the Bible, you would be amazed. Just write down three sixteen and just go through all the Bible, and it'll blow your mind with what you come up with. So it is with uh, Genesis 1, John 1, Romans 1, Hebrews 1, and Colossians 1. They all talk about creation. And who is the creator from Genesis to Colossians to Hebrews And then because of creation, our point on Sunday was that every human being um, is going to be held accountable, according to Romans 1, because of creation. That everybody knows that there's a God, and even though they say, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist, I'm a non-believer, God's saying, I'm not buying it. You're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Deep down inside, you know that all this didn't just happen. And what we used, on Sunday I used three different illustrations, and there's so many that God's going to allude to. 
Um, and I'll get to them. We, of course, use the treasury of the snow, and, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. Oh, and while I'm saying that, I forgot to mention this to the maybe this, uh, the sound room. Um, guys, if you could just get together from Sunday, those five uh, pictures of the snowflakes, I'd like to put those up again. Maybe you can get, we won't be there for a bit, but let's go ahead. And um, I will comment on verse 7. Who was there? Well, the point was, nobody was there to determine when creation um, happened. Uh, I believe in the young earth fact, not theory. I, I believe this is factual, and I take the Bible seriously. And uh, Exodus 20 tells us that the Lord did all this in six days. And you can actually chart uh, from Genesis the ages of those men that lived beginning with Adam and how long Adam lived for. So you can actually get a ballpark figure. Adam created on the sixth day. Just do the math. It's not all that hard. What you have going against you is your whole life you've been taught something else. And it's this whole thing that if you tell a lie long enough, it actually becomes truth, and the truth becomes the lie. Well, the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. So you want to give me an amen to that? So it doesn't matter what the world says about the place that I live. I'm a created being. I know who my creator is. And I know what this book teaches as far as creation. And so who was there? Well, verse 7 tells us who was there. It tells us the term here in the Hebrew is the same one that we have in Job chapter 1 and in Job chapter 2. The angels that presented themselves in Job chapter 1 and 2 are the same ones uh, where it says the sons of God, these are the, the angelic realm, they were there. What does that tell us? It tells us that there was angels before there was a planet Earth. The other thing we learned on Sunday is that there was a planet Earth before there was the sun and the moon and the stars. And that there were green plants and seeds bearing trees with fruits before there was a sun to keep them alive. That was created on the third day, and the sun and the moon were not created till the fourth day. And so it's uh, simple and not difficult at all uh, for people who hold that the scriptures are the word of God. And, um, but of course, one of the places we talked about on Sunday was how indoctrinated the world has indoctrinated us with its philosophies. Professing themselves wise, the Bible says they became fools. And I mentioned the Yale and the Harvards and the Princetons. You can't get a teaching degree if you hold to what they call intelligent design or you're a creationist. You simply won't get the job, period. All right, so that takes us, without going in any farther from last Sunday's message, if you want to get that, you can get it when you leave. <clears throat> in verses 8 to 18, there's just things that only God knows. Now, I got this filing cabinet back here. When I have a question that I read something about, and maybe I'll read a commentary. I'll see what Chuck has to say about it. I'll see what McGee has to say about it, or, or Warren Wisby, or whatever. See what they have to say about it. But even with that, there's just certain mysteries that unless you're God, you're not going to know. And uh, his ways are past finding out, he says. 
As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher above your thoughts. So there's just some things that, you know, you just had to tuck them away and <laughs> you're waiting for more information. So we're going to get into some of these things right now. Uh, verse 8, who shut up the sea with its doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? Well, we talked about Sunday, just this last couple of weeks, they discovered this ocean 400 miles down. And uh, evidently, <laughs> the Lord knows where the door to open it is and where the door to Job, do you know where it is? Well, there's a door somewhere there, and we're just finding out about it, 2014. Or when I made the clouds its garment with thick darkness its swaddling band, when I mixed my limit, when I fixed my limit for it, I set bars on its doors, and I said, you can come this far and no farther. Here, and here your proud waves must stop, and... You can't help but appreciate the beautiful poetry here when you refer to waves as being proud. Anybody that's watched on, sat on a, on a sandy beach and watched the, the wonderful flow of uh, continual waves coming in one right after another and uh, in, in, be- in beauty, that's beyond words. You know, it's just uh, the, the, the poetic verbiage here in verse 11 it's a proud wave. Well, why is it proud? Because it's so beautiful. Continuous rolling in of the ocean. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on a form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. And Job, have you entered the springs of the sea? There are springs in the sea. There's also currents in the sea. And um, sailors have found them, and they will chart their course using these natural uh, rivers in, in the ocean, the natural currents that are there. Uh, have you entered the springs, or have you walked in search of its depths? Now, 17 and 18, we'll get a little bit sidetracked here. Have, you, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Well, I didn't know there was any gates of death, for starters. And um, have you comprehended the, or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Now, here, the Lord is clearly talking about Job. Stand up like a man. You're saying you know all this about me. Let me just ask you some questions of things Job really had no idea. Um, the Lord talking about being in heaven says, you guys can't talk about heaven except me. And I'm the only one who can talk about it because I came from there and I know what it's like, so I'm qualified to speak on the subject. And unless you've been to Hades and unless you've actually seen the actual doors, we have no idea what the Lord is talking about here. That's his challenge to Job. Evidently there is. And let's just go to Luke 16. New Testament, little sidetrack. And we'll, it doesn't show us the entrance, but it definitely gives us the transformation from one to the other. And every person here, myself included, is a heart breath away from having a new body, being in heaven, and it can happen in a twinkling of an eye. It can happen on a head-on collision in a car wreck, or the rapture could happen in a twinkling of an eye tonight, and all of a sudden... We're in a new body, and we're instantly changed, 
and everything is different. So Job, when a person dies, do you actually see his spirit? Do you, ever, do you know that there's gates, Job, that there's actually a door to death? That's what he's challenging Job here. Well, you don't find it really anywhere else. Um, it does talk about perdition being open and, and the beast in Revelation coming out, other creatures coming out of the pit. That's interesting. Jude talks about certain um, spirits that are, are reserved for judgment that will be let loose. We know about that. But in, in uh, Luke chapter 16, it says the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. One of the things we learn about parables is if it's a parable, it will not have proper names in it, and this does, and therefore it is not qualified to be called a parable. And so it's a factual story that Jesus tells about a rich man that lived everyday life fine, and uh, in contrast, there was a beggar whose name was Lazarus, and he, had, he was full of sores, and it was light at the gate. Well, Lazarus was full of sores. And um, he just, the poor man wanted to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Pathetic sight. And now we have the transition in verse 22. The beggar died. And we find that the doors to heaven, according to this story, is the actual guidance of angels with the spirit that carried uh, the beggar, carried by the angel to Abraham's bosom. Uh, the rich man also died and was buried. All right, we have two transitions. One has guidance, and according to Job, and this is my hypothesis, I'm not being dogmatic about this, but somewhere between point A when you die and you wake up very much conscious in this place called Hades, evidently, according to Job 38, there's these gates, there's these doors, and says, by the way, Job, have you ever seen those? Have you ever checked those out? Of course he hadn't, and that's the point that the Lord is trying to make. But as long as we're here, let's go on a little bit and find it. It doesn't tell us anything except he just shows up there. And being in torment in Hades, he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, without getting really lengthy into this, and if you want to research it more, you're going to need Ephesians 4. Verse 8, as, as a uh, cross-reference, it explains um, that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The, rich, the, the guy who died on the cross, who believed on the Lord, says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, Jesus didn't go to heaven for three days. So on, on this one day, he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. It has to be this place here. And that's where Jesus went. So I'm just going to leave that there. Do your own research on it. But that place of comfort is where um, the thief on the cross went to. Abraham, Isaac, David, all the Old Testament saints. Hebrews 10 tells us these all died in faith, not having received the promise. In other words, when they died in the Old Testament, they didn't go to heaven. 
They went to Abraham's bosom. They died not having received the promise. They looked for it. They looked and waited for the promise to come. And that promise was Jesus Christ. And he came. And that's what it means by he set the captives free. They were waiting for him there. So let's go on. But this place of torment, uh, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip his finger and, and cool my tongue because I'm tormented in these flames. Is there torment in this place called hell? Yes, there is. But he says, son, remember in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you're in torment. And besides this, between you and us, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here cannot, nor can those go from here to there. Now, what I see here is one moment he's living luxuriously, everything's fine, has a heart attack. Who knows what happens? He dies. That's all we know. And the next moment he's in torment, and yet extremely aware, totally conscious, he knows he has relatives that are alive and well who haven't died yet, and he realizes that he's in a state and there's absolutely nothing he can do about it. He says, if that's the case, verse 27, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. See, I have five brothers. And witness to him. Preach the gospel to him. Whatever it takes, get their attention, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham says they have the Bible. And let them have the Bible. And he says, no, they, I know my brothers. They won't listen to the Bible. But if, if there's a miracle and somebody comes back from the dead, then they'll repent. And Abraham says, no, if they don't hear the Bible, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the ones would rise from the dead. Why do I go here? Well, here's a story that Jesus tells about a guy who died. He passes through, not where the angels take him into the presence of the Lord, into heaven, but past, let's go back to our text now, and maybe it'll take on a little bit more meaning. Verse 17, hey, Job, have you ever seen that place when an when a unbeliever dies? You ever see those gates that he's gone through? It makes me wonder. I know the place is real. The rich man is still there. And wherever this place is, somewhere in the center of the earth, he had to pass through these gates evidently is what's being implied. In other words, there's things, Job, that you have no idea what you're talking about. My ways are so far beyond, you would never know about this place. All right, from verses um, 19 to 22 is where we were on, on Sunday. And he just keeps going on. <clears throat> where is the way of the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? That you may take it to its territory. God spoke it into existence. Where did it come from, Job? And then do you know its home? Do you know it because... You were born then, or because the number of your days is so great? Job, have you entered into the treasures of the snow? Now, on Sunday, we did three sidetracks. I said, I wish I could go into all of them, but there was only three. Or have you entered the treasures of the hail? I'm going to highlight the difference in 22 tonight, where we were on Sunday, but give you a different application of... Um, uh, verse 23, which I have reserved for the time of trouble. Not referring to snow, but referring to hail. I want to make a distinction between the two. Guys, were you able to come up with any snowflakes? 
because it's too warm to have any outside. Here we go, praise the Lord. If you weren't here on Sunday, the question was, Job, have you ever entered into the treasures of a snowflake? Let's go to the next one. We have five or six of them here. Every snowflake has six sides. Every one of them is different, and every one of them is extremely beautiful. And every day, a trillion or so will fall in the world, and as many as there are, every one will still be very different. Now, Richie was up here tonight. He's a lifelong skier, and he's on a ski patrol, and he's up in Brule up there. And if we don't have enough snow, well, we know how to make snow. But when we make snow, it does not form crystals like this. The molecules are globbed together. I've seen pictures of them. Only when they come from the heavens will they each have these six-sided, and each one of them will be rare and individual. And then we started talking about you and I and why you're precious and you're a treasure to the Lord. The Bible says someday he's going to make up his jewels, but he's referring to you and he's referring to me. Why are you special? Because there's only one of you. You're one of a kind. And he shows us this in his creation, that there's every snowflake is one of a kind. And it just boggles my mind when I think that God can take six billion people, have every one of them look different, give every one of them a different voice, give every one of them a different personality, and we're all unique and we're all different, and yet we're all about six foot tall, some a little higher, some a little shorter. And, uh, and yet that's the treasure. Job, have you ever entered into it? Well, until we found out about microscopes, we didn't have a clue. And now we enter into that small world and see what he's talking about. But let me add to it, because, um, or have you seen the treasure of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? So now we got hail, it's different from the snowflake in that it's a treasure and beautiful and unique, but hail, on the other hand, he says, well, no, I'm kind of keeping that in my reserve back here for the day when I want to go to battle or war. I'm only going to give you two places in the Bible, one in the very beginning of the Bible and one in the very, very end. So let's go to the book of Exodus, chapter 9. Exodus 9, one of the seventh plague when God was delivering the children of Israel, he gave ten plagues that came upon the land. Here he says he's reserved hail as a judgment for war. So in chapter 9, Moses, in verse 18, says to Pharaoh, he says, Behold, tomorrow about this time, I will cause very heavy, emphasize heavy, hail to rain down such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, you better go out into the field and get your livestock out of the field, for the hail will come down on every man, every beast, which is found in the field that's not brought home, so they shall die. That's a pretty heavy hailstone. We're not talking golf ball size. We're not talking baseball size. We're not even talking um, bigger than that. I think we're talking watermelon plus size here, if we're talking about taking people's lives out. Uh, For he feared the word of the Lord among the servants, but he did not have regard for the word of the Lord. So the Lord says, I've reserved my hail when I want to go to war. And the Lord went to war against Pharaoh because of his pride. 
And the, the seventh plague in his deliverance was hail. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 16. This gets more precise and specific. Now we're at the very end of the tribulation period. We are at the end of the seven-year period of time called the tribulation period. And we find, uh, picking it up, oh, in verse, after the battle of Armageddon, we find uh, that there's an earthquake, such a great earthquake, never before every island fled away. But the very last judgment in God's arsenal that he brings upon mankind is in verse 21. And it says, And great hail from heaven fell upon man. Every hailstone was about the weight of a talent. We're talking between 75 and 125 pounds. I like to say that will put a dinghy in your car hood every single time. And what does it say in Job? Well, I've reserved the hail for my warfare. I got them back in my back pocket here. And the Lord says, I'll bring them out when I don't want to do judgment. What is Exodus? It's judgment on Egypt and Pharaoh. What is this here? It is the very last of the judgments. It is the very last thing that, that's done and it pretty much wipes out planet Earth or where this judgment was focused. I'll have to leave that there for now. Let's go back to Job. And he says, okay, Job, do you know about my warfare? Do you know about the way I warned Pharaoh? Told them, better get your cattle out of the field, because if they're not, they're not going to make it through the night. And blasphemy, and they blasphemed the God of heaven, and the penalty in the Old Testament for blasphemy is stoning. How interesting. And it even gives us the weight. So let's read verse 22 and 23 again. Have you entered the treasures of snow? Just stop there. The wonder, the beauty, the treasure. It's a jewel. On the other hand, have you seen the treasures of hail? Now we're doing a whole flip-flop. Now we're talking about um, uh, stuff that you would put in uh, uh, um, a battering ram that has those alarm, uh, arms that have these huge stones that... Catapults, thank you, that's exactly what I'm looking for. A catapult that takes these stones that knock down the walls and so on and so forth. The Lord has his own in reserve. For the day of battle and war. All right, verse 24. By what way is light diffused? Or the east wind scattered over the earth? Well, it's interesting. How, How do you diffuse light? Well, you can, anybody that's got one of those little prisms knows how to, how to do that. You just hold it up just in the right place. All of a sudden, the light goes in. You got, you got your spectrum. And it can be diffused if it passes through the right crystal. You know about that, Joe? Or the east one that scatters over the earth. Who has divided a channel for overflowing water or the path of a thunderbolt? God of Wonders has a whole couple minutes on the necessity of lightning and the hundreds of thousands of times that it happens every second. And every time it does, it takes uh, the molecules and reforms them in such a way that when they hit the ground, they fertilize the earth. And it's absolutely necessary to have that happen in order for fertilization to take place on planet earth. And they do a wonderful job explaining the mathematical equations that 
make up a lightning bolt and the necessity of it. Um, verse 26, to cause it to rain on land where there is, is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of the tender grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? Uh, from whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who, who gives it birth? It's interesting in the, in the wintertime to, to see the formations that the ice crystals form on your window in the morning. You can just see them sort of growing out and they're formed. And the frozen of the deep is frozen. In verses 31 through 33, we get into the names of star constellations that are as old as the book of Job. They're first mentioned here. The Pleiades, Orion, the Great Bear. I want to draw your attention to verse 32. It's called the the Maseroth. And I touched on it a little bit on Sunday and um, the Maseroth translated from the Hebrew would be what we would call the Zodiac today. It is A.W. Bullinger's hypothesis, he's got a pretty good argument for it, that the constellations in the Zodiac were once pure and actually presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to follow that rabbit trail, you need to get a book called The Witness of the Stars by A.W. Bullinger. And his, he talks about this verse, and he says, The Maseroth, the Zodiac, before it was corrupted, is actually named in Scripture as a Maseroth, and it has um, uh, the gospel written in the stars. He makes, there's the argument, you know, the Egyptians knew exactly how far the sun was to the earth. They, they, they had a great knowledge of astronomy, astronomy, there we go, there it is. Anyway, there's a rabbit trail if you want to tuck it in, but, you know, here's three verses, and when we read that the sun and the moon and the stars were created on the fourth day, what the Lord is saying here, that when he threw it all together, by the way, Job, I, I just didn't throw them out there, I actually formed the Pleiades, Orion. I, I wrote a story in the stars that Bullinger is right that's going to present the whole gospel called the Maseroth. And uh, do you know the ordinances of the heavens, star charts? I mean, for years, that's the way they got around. Uh, if you knew where the North Star was and you had one of those um, sea devices, somebody help me out, what do they call those things? Come on, sailors, help me here. Uh, what are they called? The sep- section. section? Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> I get myself in trouble for getting sidetracked because it should be down in my notes and I shouldn't go there. But for years, that's, that, that was the navigation. You, you, you could get around. And uh, so the Lord says, do you know that I set that all up? That I've set them in dominion over the earth and their ordinances for the heavens? So you could, you could chart your, 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 your ship from one place to the other and actually get there. Verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to them, here we are? 
And who has put wisdom in the mind? Oh, now we're getting so technical with all the, all that has to take place in the complexity of the human mind for us to articulate thought, think things through, make decisions, all at a split second, do mathematical equations, learn your ABCs, all the way up to math and calculus and, and beyond. And all the wonder that takes place in that. Job, who put wisdom in the mind? Who put it there? Or who has given the understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can pour out the, the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens and clumps and the, and the clogs cling together? And he closes it out with a reference uh, to the, the king of the animal world, the lion. We're gonna, I like this tonight, but I really got sidetracked thinking about the horses in chapter 40, I think. But here we talk about the lion in verses 39 through 41. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lives to lay in wait? We've all watched the, the National Geographic programs and the cameras out in the, in the field and you see the cat creeping up on its prey. The Lord says, I did all that. And his crouch and how he... he uh, he stalks his prey when he provides food for the raven when his young ones cry uh, to God for food and wander about for lack of food. The lion, the king of the forest, the king of beasts he's called, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, John weeps because it looks like planet Earth is doomed forever without redemption. He can't handle it that there's never going to be a redemption. And so he, he falls apart. John just breaks down, crying like a little baby. And the angel says, John, don't cry. He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. There's a king of the forest, John. And he's worthy not only to look upon the scroll, but to go and take it. And he does. And the Lord appears and he goes and he takes a scroll out of the Father's hands and all of heaven erupts. The saints sing a song and all the angels break forth because now we're talking about the last seven years unfolding and the Lord is about ready to wind things up. So these last couple of verses, 39 through 41, king of the forest, well, our king is, of course, the king of kings and he will be triumphant as he establishes his kingdom. Chapter 39, the Lord is still speaking. Let's keep it in context here. Job is just, he has to be completely dumbfounded, overwhelmed as the Lord is uh, saying, stand up like a man, I'm still talking to you, Job. So he continues in verse uh, chapter 39, and he starts with, the wild mountain goats, how they bear their young. Well, I'm, you get mind-boggled with these guys. Whenever we're in En Gedi, we always see the wild mountain goats. And En Gedi means the place of the wild goat, mountain goats. And they're walking. I mean, the face is like this. And you see these goats up there walking around. You go, how in the world can they do that? And you see the little ones jumping all over on the side of a mountain with a 70-foot angle on it. And you go, how in the world? 
And that's what he's saying here, that the mountain goats bear their young. They grow up on the side of a mountain. And it's amazing. Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear young? They bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring, the young ones are healthy. They grow strong with grain, they depart and do not return to them. Why no mention to their sure-footedness? Who knows, but reference to the, the mountain goat. Well, who set the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of, of an onger? Whose home I have made in the wilderness? And the barren land his dwelling. He scorns the tumult of the city. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture. And he, search, he searches after every green thing. While will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he bed in your manger? Now, the, the wildness of this creature is, is that he's just that. He's, a, he's wild and he's out on the range. <clears throat> we talk about storks and them not being wise. <laughs> and evidently, you know, the, the ostrich here is big, uh, but it, the Lord is implying that uh, he's not gifted with um, the eternal motherly instincts that other uh, animals inherit. Evidently, the ostrich does not. They're proudly. Um, but are her wings and uh, pinons like the kindly storks? Because she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust, she forgets that a foot might crush them or that a wild beast might break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. There's that lack of motherly affection and instinct. Her labor is in vain without concern because God deprived her of wisdom. So I'm going to make a bird and make her a dumb bird, <laughs> brain, uh, brain dead bird, because God uh, didn't allow her to have that capacity. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. Now, beginning with 19 here, boy, um, Jim, you're, you're here and you're a guy who raises horses, and... Um, I thought of you today, actually, as reading through this, because he works in, with them on a daily basis, and I know I appreciated these verses because um, it, it's probably the best description, especially as a horse in his nature and character gets re- ready for battle. Um, saw a movie a while back called War Horse, just having the spirit that's inside a horse and how they're just... Instead of backing down, there's this extra gear that seems the Lord has put inside of them that says, bring it on when it comes to um, a battle for a horse. And here, Job just does this beautiful poetic job of, of talking about a, a horses. He says, have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic Snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley. We've all seen, you know, way back as far as Roy Roger <laughs> and Trigger doing the, the paw in the dirt thing. 
Um, or even, even at the beginning, I saw a couple of horses doing it when we were watching the derby. Right before the, these uh, stallions, these, these thoroughbreds, just having this attitude, bring it on, you know, digging in the dirt. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks that fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The, the quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage, nor do, does he stand firm because the trumpet has sounded. Let's go, the trumpet's blasted. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, ah, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. That's all true in the nature of a horse. They have this extra gear about them. They sense it. Um, and again, uh, th- th- this uh, movie, War Horse, really captures it, if you've never seen it. Anyway, I was captivated by horses. I love horses, and, and Job here describes, or the Lord describes to them that Think about horses, Job. Yeah, I thought that all up. That's all me. That's me putting those instincts in that creature. Verse 26 through 30, the rest of this chapter, does a hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings towards the south? Can you see how he's just hopping from one marvel of creation to the next? Now he's going to go from the spirit, inner spirit, of a stallion to the eye of an eagle. And that's what I chose to dwell on here. It talks about the eagle's mount, and he makes his nest on high. He dwells in the rocks, on the crag, and stronghold. For there he spies out the prey. When I got to that verse, I stopped, and I googled the eyes of an eagle. And I was just curious to see what it would say. This is what I learned this afternoon. If a human being had the eyes of an eagle, you can be on top of a 10-story building and you can chart the path of an ant as it walks along. You can see it from 10 stories up. You just sit there and you go just like that. 10 stories up and you can check out the trail of an ant. The colors of an eagle evidently is intensified. Their, their colors of blue are much more vivid, according to what I read today. Uh, they can see uh, five times farther than humans, and their radius is such because of the way their eyes are set that they can almost see all the way around to the back of them at the same time. So their whole scope, and the Lord just puts it in one verse here. He says, as he spies out his prey, and every person here has heard the terminology, well, he's got the eyes of an eagle. And, um, the, you know, the, the thought and the wisdom that had to go into that, in contrast to the spirit that God has put into um, one of his creatures, the horse. Now, here's two chapters with the Lord standing and breaking in on the conversation. It had to be one thing to have the Lord just break into the conversation, but then to run this, these tests past Job, Job, if you know so much, then what about this? What about this? What about this? What about the snow? What about the gates of the doors of death? Job had no idea. He's overwhelmed. Moreover, chapter 40, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Now just 
look at the little lesson we had in the things that God has put into the animal kingdom, beyond thinking about the beauty that's there, the intelligence that's there, the spirit that's there, all the above. And then he says, you're going to contend with me, Job? And you're going to talk as a man like you got this thing figured out? Verse 2, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, okay, it's your turn to talk, Job. What do you got to say? Wow, what can you say at this point? <laughs> after after uh, 38 and 39, Job's been taking this all in. And uh, so we have Job's first response. He's been talking a lot about God for a lot of chapters. But now, all, the, all Job can say in light of what the Lord has just laid on him is, holy smokes, oh man, what can I say? What can I say? I can say I'm vile. I can say, what shall I answer you? I'm going to lay my hand over my mouth. I've been speaking a lot. I've spoken once, but I'm not going to answer anymore. Yes, twice, and I'm not going to proceed any farther, period. He had to be, you know, just put yourself in a situation. He's... We all talk about the Lord. We defend him. Um, We believe in him. We tell our loved ones about him. And yet when it gets right down to it, if the Lord appeared and started talking to us, we'd probably say, holy smokes, there's a whole lot that (laughs) I have not correctly represented you with. Because every time somebody sees the Lord or is confronted with the fact that he's there, it's just an overwhelming fall in your face. You know, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground type situation. Well, that's what happens to Job. That's all I can say. He says, I'm vile. You're holy. You've done all these wonderful, marvelous things. And I'm this man that's been spouting off all these things, and I don't know nothing. I spoke way out of turn. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I'm done. Well, the Lord's not. So we're picking it up in chapter forty. 6 through 14, God continues to confront Job up to verse 14. Then the Lord answered Job again out of the whirlwind. How did he talk to Moses? Through the burning bush. He talks to Job through the whirlwind. Now prepare yourself like a man. He's already said that. I'm going to question you and you're going to answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you would be justified? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? This reminds me of Revelation, when John heard a voice behind him like the sounds of many waters. And, um, you know, just thinking about it for a second, that God is going to speak someday. You're going to understand Revelation chapter 1, when the voice of the Lord speaks. Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Revelation 4 gives us a little glimpse of the throne room. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah got to see it. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Shekinah glory was there. And all he could say is, woe is me. I'm I've, a man with unclean lips, and I've seen a holy living God. Verse 11 
Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humbles him. I put in my uh, Bible here Nebuchadnezzar. And um, uh, he was a proud guy. He took credit for all that he had, didn't give God the glory. And um, the Lord humbled him. And so the last verse of, of um, his testimony, according to Nebuchadnezzar, is that everybody who, acts, who walks in pride, God is able to humble that person. He's able to uh, cut him down to size. You know that phrase, cut him down to size, you know where it comes from? The book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was the tree that was cut down. He was cut down to size. That's where the phrase comes from. He looks on everyone who is proud and brings him low. The Mussolinis, the Hitlers, the Gaddafis, the Osama bin Ladens, and so on and so forth. And the guy that they're raising up now, who he's trying to hide his face, the leader of ISIS. That guy's, the Lord's got that. Don't you know the Lord has that guy's number? Because that guy's got Israel's in sight. And all I can think of is, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And if this guy thinks his number one goal is Jerusalem, he's toast. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Just making sure you're still there. <laughs> this guy's he has, you know, he's messing with the creator of the universe, and the apple of his eye is Israel and the Jewish people. And that guy's in trouble, big time. And he's able to bring them low and trend down the wicked in their place, hide them in their dust together, bind their faces in, in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your, that your own right hand can save you. And this what the Lord is bringing, and let me say this a couple times because this is really summing up the book of Job. The book of Job is not about suffering. The book of Job is about what does Job learn from the suffering that he went through. Up till the time that God appears, I'm innocent of this, I'm innocent of this, I'm innocent of this, you guys are wrong, you've accused me falsely, so on and so forth. But it's only at this point here that Job realizes he's vile and he's wretched in the sight of a holy living God. And that's what he's learning as, as we unfold this, unfold this here. So, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he humbles the proud. That brings us to ver- verse 14. Job, you, you're not righteous and you can't save yourself. Um, put up on the screen the dinosaur. The, beh- the behemoth, when Russ Miller was with us, he actually, ver- this, the rest of this chapter and chapter 41 are going to deal with dinosaurs. And he's going to compare Job in his own self-righteous strength to this creature here. He says, Job, this is the way you've been. Your three friends have been trying to take you out for 25 chapters. You've stood as strong and as tall, and the Lord uses this creature as an example. He says, look at the behemoth which I made along with you. He eats like an ox. His strength is in his hips, his power is in his stomach and muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. Uh, the sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are beams of bronze, his ribs are iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring him near the sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him, and the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus tree. He, 
He, uh, um, in a convert of reeds and marshes, the lotus tree cover him with their shade, the willows of the brook surround him. Indeed, the rivers may rage, yet he's not disturbed. He's confident. Um, Though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one piece of his nose with 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 a snare. Joe, you've been you've been standing strong, like the strongest creature I've ever made. And um, my title above this says, "God compares the power of Job of that with Behemoth." Now, my question is: We have this chapter and the next one clearly talking about dinosaurs. And I think, what do you make of that? Well, one of the things you can make about it is that evidently dinosaurs existed at the same time as Job, that they were both there at the same time. That would be one. And um, again, he's talking to Job about ah, standing that strong against his, uh, his three adversaries. I'm not going to read all of chapter 41. I'm just going to point out that it goes on and Job... God compares the power of Job with that of Leviathan. Now, when, if you weren't here with Russ Miller, he went into detail with both these creatures. And this was one, Behemoth, um, one of the dinosaurs. Leviathan, on the other hand, is none other, and you can't escape it, none other than um, a fire-breathing dragon. And Russ went into all the things that would be necessary, the chemicals in the human body that would be necessary for this to actually take place. And so I would encourage you to, to get that. Um, let's just go down where it talks about um, his scales, verse 15, our pride. He shuts up a seal, one to the other. They're so close together, no air can come between them. They are joined to one another. He sneezes, and his flesh brings forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of morning. Uh, smoke goes out of his nostrils, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. He breathes kindling coals, and flames go out of his mouth. And, you, and many are thinking, Dwight, <laughs> are you still with us, bro? You're talking fire-breathing dragons here. Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. And do you know that in every ancient culture, they are stories of fire-breathing dragons that look like this, or somewhat somewhere along that line. Incredible creatures, impossible to take out, and um, uh, I believe the Bible clearly talks about them. The reason I invited Russ Miller to our conference is his presentation that he gave on dinosaurs in Noah's Ark it was so well done. And for those of you who are here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm going to leave it at that. The point is this. The Lord talks about dinosaurs in the Bible being alive during the same time as man. Their strength and their fortitude, like no other creature on the planet, including the Leviathan in chapter 41. All right, let's go to chapter, verse 33 says, On earth there's nothing like him which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. Which makes me think of Lucifer. Which brings us to our final chapter tonight in the, in the book of Job. Job, now, this will be the second and last time Job speaks. 
Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Gang, we just so much skimmed the top of the surface tonight talking about snowflakes, the spirit of a horse, um, the strength of uh, a dinosaur, uh, the power of these creatures, the spirit of these creatures, each one unique, each one different. And Job basically says, I'm a fool for ever trying to describe anything, Lord, that you have put together. It's too wonderful for me, which I did not know. David probably nailed it best in Psalm 139 when he says, I just, I just know that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Blows my mind. That this, that we're actually here, communicating, living, and just pause and think about it for a while, and it really is overwhelming. Things too wonderful for me. Well, that's exactly what David said. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Which I did not know. And then... Listen, please, let me speak. You said, I will question you, you will answer me. Well, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Heard about you my whole life. Prayed for my kids, made sacrifices for them. But now my eyes see you, therefore I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I'm going to read what McGee has to say here because we're closing up the book of Job tonight. And I want you to capture the heart of what the book of Job is about, and McGee does a better job of what I'd be able to say, so I'm going to quote him. Now, this man, Job, has a new conception of God. He is not in a position to question God in anything that he does. He is to trust him. He is in a new relationship with him. First, Job saw himself as he really was, And then he came into a new relationship with himself. He saw himself as vile. He abhorred himself. Now he sees himself in a new relationship to God. He repents in dust and ashes. And that's in verse 6. Here are the steps of real repentance. This is the repentance that is in faith. First, you must see yourself as vile. Second, you must abhor yourself. You know, that's why Paul called himself the chief of all sinners. The apostle Paul, the guy who wrote the New Testament, yeah. He said, I am the chief of all sinners. Perhaps you have seen birds feeding on carrion in the wilderness. When you quit trusting yourself and quit trying to live on the old dead carcass of self, and you turn to the living God, that is real repentance. What a wonderful thing it is. Job recognizes the sovereignty of God. He confesses his sin and repents. God has accomplished his purpose in the life of Job. Job evidently realized that the reason God has permitted him to suffer is to bring him to repentance. He sees himself in the light of the presence of God, not in the light of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. That's completely different. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us 
from all sin. Oh, Job sees everything differently now. And this is the last, last thing that Job says. Lord, I repent, I'm vile, and I'm gonna do it with dust and ashes. That's real repentance. Verse seven, and so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, now it's interesting, he doesn't call out Bildad and Zophar by name, he only mentions Eliphaz by name, and I think that's interesting. He says, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, and this is what gets me, and I don't have an answer for this, as my servant Job has. So he's saying, you guys are wrong, and Job is right, and yet he's just got done <laughs> putting Job pretty much in his place. And yet, um, the Lord is siding up with Job here, it's clear. Now, therefore, he's talking to Eliphaz, you and your two buddies, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. Offer up for yourself a burnt offering, and my servant Job will pray for you, for I'm going to accept him. And lest I deal with you guys according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar went and did as the Lord commanded them. Time to swallow humble pie. There's a time to do that. And if you're wrong, admit you're wrong. (laughs) And uh, they do, to their credit. And they go to Job and say, Job, we blew it. God says we've got to come to you and make it right with you. And unless you pray for us, we're not off the hook. And Job, and they do, and uh, verse, um, this is 7 through 9, instead of fighting against his friends or debating them, he's now going to pray for them. And he's going to offer sacrifices for them. In verse 10, the rest of the book, and the Lord now restores Job, Job's losses. When he prayed for his friends, indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And this is why we always have to read the end of the story. And no matter what you're going through tonight, or what you're going through any time, you're going to go through your Job experience. The book of Job tells us, what are you going to learn from the experience? How are you going to come out the other end? Well, with Job, with all that he was going through and wishing he was never born, and why did this happen to me? Well, so he could stand before the Lord someday and get it all right. And now he's restored twice as much. And then as all his brothers and sisters come, all of his acquaintances came to him, ate food with him in his house. They consoled him. I'm sure there was a lot of tears, a lot of rejoicing. Evidently, Job is now healed of his affliction and comfort him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and some gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys, and a partridge in a pear tree, all tied in together. I had to throw it in. It's getting late. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He said, hey, hey, ho, 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 it's that double. This isn't double. This is that what he had before. And again, I would not have seen this, and I can't take credit for it, but McGee caught it. And he says, some people say that he didn't have twice as 
many kids as he had before. And what McGee has to say about that is he never really lost the seven sons and daughters. They are still very, very much alive. And um, uh, he goes, God didn't double them. Yes, he did. You see, Job did not lose those sons and daughters who died. They were still his. He was yet to be with them. Remember when David's son died, what David said? He said, I will go to him, but he can't return to me. So he's very, very much alive. So he doubled them. He gave him seven more. Seven and seven is 14, so he had 14. Good insight on McGee's part. And he also called the name of the one, Jemiah. She made pancakes the rest of her life. You'll get that later. Sorry, it's late. (laughs) I'll leave the other names off. And in the land concerning these gals, these three gals, no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Now Job lived 140 years after this with his children and grandchildren, four generations, so Job died full of old age. This gives us a time frame. This, is one, this verse right here in closing is one of the reasons we believe it's one of the oldest books in the Bible. We are told that he lived this long. It would put him in the same time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he had longevity of life 140 years after that. Well, Abraham lived 175 years. So there's this cutoff point in, as you look at longevity of life where it just radically cuts off to where in David's time, he says, three score and 10, 70 is what you have, but not here, 175. So that's how they sort of feel this is where they come up with the time date of it. Well, I'm only five minutes past my time, so let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for, thank you for the book of Job. The wonder of it, the the beauty and the poetry of it. Lord, I pray for all of us who go in this life, we're going to experience our periods of time, like Job did, the dark night of the soul, difficult times, hard times. Lord, your word tells us not to think it strange concerning the trials that will try us. Lord, Job teaches us that you are sovereign. There isn't anything that came into Job's life that you didn't allow for your purposes. It brought him to a place of humility where he saw himself in your light and not in the light of other people. Lord, as we stand before you, help us never compare ourselves to one another. But Lord, help us realize we stand before a holy living God and we should walk humbly and uh, guard our words very, very carefully and uh, choose our words very, very carefully, knowing we'll have to give an account for them. So we thank you for this wonderful book, and we pray you bless it to our hearts, and we can glean from it, Lord, and grow from it. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. We've just finished another book of the Bible. God bless you guys. We'll pick up part of this on Sunday morning.